Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, and more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with meditation teacher, neuroscientist, and author John Yates, also known as Chuladasa. Chuladasa has the honor of being the most requested guest ever, or so far, for the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. After decades of dedicated Buddhist practice, Chuladasa exploded on the scene a couple of years ago with his groundbreaking book, The Mind Illuminated, which is an erudite mixture of neuroscience, traditional Buddhist practice, and Chuladasa's own ideas about how to make the most of your meditation practice. It's really a comprehensive guide to meditation. So I was definitely excited to do an interview with Chuladasa, and I'm very happy to be able to present it to you now. So without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Attention, Awareness, and the Great Adventure. Chuladasa, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks. It's a pleasure to have you here. Out of all the many people I've had on the podcast, when I announced on various social media channels that I was going to interview you, I certainly got a major flood of interest and questions and people very, very excited about it. So you're a big hit out there in meditation land right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's good to know. <laughs> There's actually a Reddit subreddit about your book, The Mind Illuminated, which for listeners, if you have not read The Mind Illuminated, it's quite a powerful and fascinating and helpful text on meditation. So integrating Buddhist wisdom and brain science from Chuladasa. Anyway, in that subreddit, there were a lot of questions for you from many, many, many fans. And by far the biggest one is, I was surprised, the one that almost everyone asked about. They were asking you to compare your system with, of all people, Shin and Young's system. <laughs> I know you two know each other, and it, I think yeah. it turns out that there's a lot of folks out there who both work with you and work with Shinzen. So they were definitely interested on how his model of mindfulness based on concentration, sensory clarity, and equanimity lines up, in your mind anyway, lines up with your model based on the balance of attention and awareness. Yes. Well, I find that he's using different language and coming really from a different direction. But uh, the two models are actually quite complementary to each other, models of what mindfulness is. Now, his identifies concentration. That's a word that I don't like that much because it has a lot of other connotations. But I think what he means by it is exactly the same thing that I mean by stability of attention. And that is most definitely a part of mindfulness. It's not just stability of attention, though. As you probably know of the different forms of concentration that are spoken of in the suttas and the commentaries, is something called kanika samadhi. Continuously uh, moving concentration. That's right. That's basically where the object of your attention can move from one object to another, and it can remain on that object 
however long or however briefly you choose for it to. But there is total engagement of the attentional faculty with that object for however long it remains there. And maybe one of the greatest differences is that unless you choose to allow attention to move freely, the movements of attention will be a reflection of what your conscious intentions are. Yeah, it would be fun and interesting, I think, for you to unpack that a little further. Sure, sure. The first thing that we develop in terms of attentional stability is to take a meditation object. I like to use the sensations produced by the breath. And it's important to distinguish that I'm talking about the sensations, the actual fact of the sensations that you experience directly, not any sort of conceptualization or visualization, although that is there, but you're doing your best to focus on the sensations. So the breath is a continually changing object, but at the same time, it's repetitive. So it has all the advantages of a fixed object. So you train your attention to follow the unfolding series of sensations that make up the breath. So this gives you great stability of attention. This is the quality of stability that is most important. Normally, your mind would allow your attention to rest on something until either something more interesting comes along or until it feels like it's exhausted the interest of what you're paying attention to, and then it will move to something else. The other thing that your mind normally does is allows your attention to alternate you may be paying attention to one thing, but your attention is flickering back and forth with other things in the field of conscious awareness at the same time. This alternating attention is taking place. So stability of attention can be refined to the point that not only is this no longer this tendency for attention to wander off in search of something more interesting, but you also stop this rapid flickering back and forth of attention unless you want it to take place. So alternating attention ceases as well. What this means is that the quality of your attention in each moment of consciousness is very solid and clear. And in the case of the breath, it will continue to follow that sequence of sensations until you choose to have it do something else. If you placed it on something that was unchanging, it would stay there until you chose to change it. But if you give it permission to move, it will land on each item that arises that attracts attention to it. And it will be fully with it until something else attracts it to it. Or if you choose to follow closely, I talked about following the sensations of the breath as they unfold. But when you have this quality of attention, you can actually follow the sequence of the links of dependent origination as they unfold. The stability of attention that I'm talking about is not dependent upon the object. It's a faculty of the attention itself. It's a quality of the attention itself. It goes where you want, stays as long or as short as you want, and is totally engaged with the object of attention for as long as it's there. And would you say that as this develops to that level of stability, does attention require effort to stay in the place you want it to, or is it relatively effortless? Well, by the time you've achieved that quality of stability, it has become effortless. 
In the beginning, it requires effort, although I prefer to describe it more as sustained intention, because it's not that the word effort isn't correct, it isn't accurate, because it is. There's a certain expenditure of effort to make this happen. But the word carries a lot with it that doesn't belong, a kind of striving or grasping. And so that's why I prefer to describe it as a sustained attention to keep the attention on the meditation object. So there is that. As you go along, the mind becomes more habituated to attention remaining wherever you choose to place it. And I use the term advisedly, you advisedly, because the mind itself is the you. But anyway, as the mind becomes habituated to this relationship between movements of attention and conscious intention, then it becomes effortless. And actually, there is an interesting challenge that the meditator encounters. They'll reach this point where the mind is sufficiently habituated to this behavior that they can do it effortlessly, but then they're so used to exerting effort to sustain attention, you know, always being vigilant for a movement of attention and always bringing the attention back, that uh, it's actually a bit of a challenge just to relax and stop doing that. So that's an interesting part of the process. Backing up just a little bit, you were describing, you know, your understanding of attention and stability of attention versus Shinzen's term. So the relationship between concentration and stability of attention. I think within the system of shamatha vipassana that I teach, we probably take attentional stability to a greater degree than Shinzen does. Although any of Shinzen's students who practice ardently enough, long enough, are going to achieve that. But there isn't the specific process that we undergo intentionally achieving that degree of attentional stability. Okay, so then that's the relationship between concentration and stability of attention. Clarity. Now, what Shinzen is referring to as clarity, as long as including the sixth sense of the mind in that, it corresponds to what I refer to as awareness. I refer to it initially as peripheral awareness, so it becomes clear to the person who is learning to use this faculty that awareness is something different than attention. Attention is more focal, and these are, in fact, two completely different modes of conscious perception. They're two completely different modes of knowing that are served by different areas in the brain. It's something in my own meditation practice and development. It seemed to me that the instructions that I was receiving from my teachers and from texts and things like that implied that I should have a kind of single-pointed focus of attention such that everything else was excluded from consciousness. And my experience was that that was extremely hard to do. And when I did achieve it, it was a very non-productive state for the mind to be in. So I gave up on that and I allowed myself to be aware of, in other words, to allow all these other things to be in my consciousness at the same time that my attention was focused on my meditation object, on the sensations of my breath. And this made my meditation enormously easier. And not only that, by doing so, I realized that I could tell when there was a tendency for something to draw my attention away. 
and so that I could correct for that before it happened. This was a wonderful realization. And then in perusing the neuroscientific literature, a description of these two different perceptual modes that were served by two different brain regions and the qualities that were ascribed to them. And I realized, wow, this is exactly what I'm experiencing. And I find that I'm able to use this faculty of awareness to help me improve the stability of my attention. And what I was also finding is that the more stable my attention was, that the more powerful was this peripheral awareness that I had of everything else. This made a huge difference in my own practice, and it's at the core of what I teach. Just to make it clear, I like to use the analogy, it's a very close analogy, in fact, with vision. With vision, we have a focal point of vision, and we have peripheral vision. They're qualitatively different, and they're actually processed by different parts of the visual cortex of the brain. The relationship between attention and peripheral awareness is very directly analogous to the relationship between the visual focus and peripheral vision. So that what you'll notice is if you focus your eyes on, say, a spot on the wall across the room or some object that's a few feet away from you, and you keep your visual focus more or less stable, that your peripheral vision begins to become richer and fuller, and now you're seeing a much larger picture. Now, at a subtle level, there is a certain, what's called nystagmus. It's a very small movement of your eye. But your eye is not really scanning your visual field when that happens. So that's not what's accounting for this. Peripheral vision corresponds to peripheral awareness. Your field of conscious awareness is like your visual field as a whole. But you'll notice in this little exercise that I've described that if you move the focal point of your vision from one thing to another to another to another, the quality of your peripheral vision rapidly deteriorates. Whereas if you stabilize your attention, then as I said, all of these things stand out in your peripheral vision. The same thing happens when you stabilize attention. Even when you just stabilize attention a little bit, your peripheral awareness becomes much clearer. That's, I think, a great analogy for comparing these two. Now, back to clarity. (laughs) When your attention is not rapidly alternating with several other things at the same time, there is greater clarity and vividness of perception of the object of attention. And when you have allowed your peripheral awareness to develop. Basically, it's a faculty that we all have and use, but we underuse. Culturally, and perhaps species-wide, except for Aboriginal cultures, we suffer from serious awareness deficit uh, disorder, (laughs) a different kind of uh, ADD. But as your peripheral awareness becomes powerful, then there is a greater clarity of everything that is in your field of conscious awareness. Now, the things that occupy the contents of your field of conscious awareness can be distinguished as mental objects, objects of introspective awareness, and those things that are outside of your mind, sensations in your body, vision, sound, tactile sensations, and all these other things. So we can say you have extrospective awareness and you have introspective awareness. 
And that's why I say, in order to draw a direct correlation with what Shinzen is talking about, the sensory clarity has to include a mind sense as well. Which it definitely does. Which it definitely does, right. So what is really more important to the insight and awakening project is not extrospective awareness. If you were a martial artist, extrospective peripheral awareness would be of paramount importance. Your life may depend on it. But if you are looking inwardly to discover your nature, in fact, you have to look inward to discover the nature of that which lies outside as well. <laughs> so introspective awareness is really important. This is the aspect of awareness that is most underdeveloped in us. So this is a different kind of clarity. This is a clarity about the processes that are going on in our mind, the kinds of thoughts and feelings, the shifting mental states. And the clearer it becomes, the more you become aware of how there is this constant internal movement in your mind. The movements of attention are only one kind of movement. In the field of peripheral introspective awareness, there are thoughts arising and passing away. There are emotions arising and passing away. There are feelings in the sense of pleasant and unpleasant arising and passing away. There is an overall mental state which is continually shifting, largely as a result of these things that enter and leave your field of conscious awareness. And so clarity, that kind of clarity comes to introspective awareness. And in its fullest development, it's what I describe as metacognitive introspective awareness. It's as though your mind's eye had been elevated and it can now see the landscape of your mind as a whole, including attention and peripheral awareness and the relationship between the two, the interaction between attention and objects and peripheral awareness. Now, this is the kind of clarity that we're going for. And I believe that it is very similar to the clarity that Shinzen is talking about and going for as well. I'd love to hear Shinzen's response to this, but his method doesn't stress achieving this kind of clarity. But just as I said about stability of attention, anybody that practices his methods, and I use the word plural methods here, diligently does develop that kind of clarity that I refer to as metacognitive introspective awareness. So we're both on track about mindfulness here. Now, he brings into it the quality of equanimity, which is something that we allow to develop in the method that I teach. We go through a process, a very powerful kind of equanimity develops, but we can practice at any time bringing equanimity to our experience moment by moment. In order to do that, though, we need to have a certain clarity of introspective awareness. We have to have achieved enough clarity that we can see when the mind's in reaction and just choose to observe that reaction and let it go. Not driving it away, not squishing it. It's just recognizing it that it's there and in that recognition, allowing it to pass away. And when you have this kind of clarity, then you begin to experience more and more equanimity as a part of your experience. Now, this brings us to my definition of mindfulness. I would define mindfulness as the optimal interaction between attention and awareness. 
Now, this is assuming that you have good mindfulness, powerful mindfulness, strong mindfulness, that you have developed some stability of attention, and you have developed some degree of powerful awareness, particularly introspective awareness. Once you have that, you can begin to optimize the interaction between attention and awareness. Actually, it begins to optimize itself because now both are fully functioning on a continuous basis rather than having attention dominate and awareness being pushed off to the side. But the highest form of mindfulness is what in Pali is referred to as sati sampajana, or this is mindfulness with clear comprehension as it's often translated. What does this mean? This means that you know. The mindfulness part is that you know what it is that you are thinking, feeling, saying, and doing. Now, where the clear comprehension comes as the mindfulness becomes more powerfully developed, that manifests as not only knowing what you are thinking, feeling, saying, and doing, but why those particular thoughts and emotions, speech, and action are arising. In other words, you are aware of, metacognitively aware, of the sources from which these are arising. Now, in addition to knowing what you are thinking, feeling, saying, and doing, and why you are thinking, feeling, saying, and doing it, you also know whether or not the thoughts, the feelings, the speech, and the action that you're engaging with is consistent with what you want them to be. What you want them to be in terms of, are they consistent with you being the kind of person that you want to be and aspire to be? Are they consistent with your desired outcome of the situation you're in in the moment? Are they consistent with your beliefs about what is wholesome and unwholesome? And this is not just applied to meditation. This is not just mindfulness in meditation. I think that's clear from the description. This is something that applies to every situation in your life. So this is the ultimate development of this optimal interaction between attention and peripheral awareness. You are paying attention to what is most appropriate in the most appropriate way. And this is being guided by this powerful metacognitive introspective awareness. A question that comes up for me around that concerns the depth to which even extremely powerful mindfulness can penetrate into the sort of pre-processing circuits of the brain. I understand you're describing knowing where all these streams of thought and action are coming from, but isn't there a lower limit beyond which conscious perception cannot go? I'm not totally sure what you're asking here. A lower limit, which, yeah, maybe you could explain that a little more. The way I understand the brain, let's just restrict the question to the thinking process, knowing what one's thinking, and especially why they're thinking it. Any particular thought is bubbling up from a very large number of parallel processing thoughts very deep in the unconscious. And those get voted up and voted up and voted up till finally a thought that is important enough starts to rise to the level where 
introspective awareness can notice it at all. Yes, yes. You described it perfectly. <laughs> yes. So, but beneath that, sometimes I would describe it as you can feel a thought arising and be unaware of its content, and you know that it, here it comes one. Yeah. But understanding why that's there, or literally every step of where it came from, seems to not be possible because there's a lower limit of how deep into the unconscious your introspection can go. That's the question that's coming up for me. There's sort of a black box down there at a deep enough level. So how would you respond to that? Well, yeah, I agree with that totally, yes, now that I understand what you mean. Yes, you know, if you think of the brain and the mind, either or both, as consisting of a hierarchy of information processing systems, which at the lowest level is just a very primitive level of processing that takes place, but the results of that processing are then passed to the next level where they're combined with information that has also come up from that same lower level. They are processed and the results of that processing is passed up to a higher level. And so eventually, I mean, this is the bubbling up that you described. Eventually, the bubbles reach the boundary. There's not really a boundary between conscious awareness and unconscious awareness, more like the penumbra flashlight beam or something. It's a gradation. But you reach the point where they begin to reach the level of consciousness. Now, when they reach the level of consciousness, then this is information that becomes available to other parts of the mind that have not been involved in that information processing. And they, in a sense, because they're not a part of the particular information processing pathway that produced a particular piece of conscious experience... If information from too far down in the process arises in consciousness, it doesn't make sense any longer. Now, if we go to the physical sensations, I can describe this in terms of a physical sensation, and then you can see how that would correspond to different kinds of emotions, different kinds of thought. There's so many different kinds of mental processes that we carry out. But in the sensory realm, we have what are usually referred to as the five physical senses, which is not really a complete description because it omits proprioception and it fails to recognize that what we call touch, tactile sensation, actually consists of a whole family of different sensations. But we'll leave that aside. Let's take a particular sensation. Let's take vision. Now, normally what arises in consciousness is a fairly highly processed object where there are boundaries, there are colors, there are edges, there is shape, there is form. All of these different things have been combined into something that is recognizable and that we're familiar with. Now, as we go down in the levels, we can consciously recognize and are comfortable perceiving just the lines and edges and contrast. That's fine. Take the color out and uh, we've got lines and edges and contrast. We can remove the various levels of the contrast so that we just have lines. And in many cases, it still makes sense. But if you go to a level of visual information processing beneath that, you're going to reach a point where it no longer makes any sense to the eye. Well, here's another example. I'll bet you that most of your listeners have had and that you've had as well. You ever been driving at night and suddenly there's something that you see ahead of you and you just feel your mind struggling to identify it and it can't identify it. 
you don't know how to respond to it or anything like that. But then it will suddenly become recognizable that, oh, there's a curve ahead, there's a guardrail, and it's got a fluorescent paint on it, so it shows up. You ever had that kind of experience? Absolutely. There's that moment of discomfort and strain while you are waiting for the brain to figure out what it's seeing. And it even tries on different possibilities. And then there's a further moment where suddenly it resolves and you know what it is immediately. Right. You get enough information that has been sufficiently processed at a deeper level that now it's recognizable and you immediately shift into your comfort zone. You know exactly how to respond. (laughs) Same thing happens when you're following the breath with the nose. You know, really you start out and there's all this conceptual overlay that you have a body, the nose is a part of the body. There's this stuff called air that is moving in and out. There's space and is such a thing as in and out and all that stuff. As you continue to observe the sensations of the breath, the conceptual part starts to fall away and there's just sensations, there's warmth, there's movement, there's coolness, you know, there's various kinds of tactile sensations that are associated with the in and the out breath unfolding in a series and you have this experience of, you know, I don't even know whether these sensations are part of the in breath or the out breath. But then if you keep closely following the sensations of the breath, you come to a place where It just degenerates into like a sort of vibratory phenomenon, which might be pleasant for some people, but other people, it gives them an extreme form of that same discomfort that I talked about. You know, you see something ahead of your car when you're driving on a highway at night. It becomes so uncomfortable that the mind jumps back to a level that things are recognizable. But what you're actually having is a potentially valuable insight experience. You you see how your mind is actually creating your world of objects and conscious experience out of a kind of raw data that is meaningless. So yeah, there's a limit. There's definitely a limit. And getting to that limit can be a wonderfully illuminating experience too, or it can be terrifying. It seems like some people do definitely have sort of bounce off that a number of times and find it jarring or harsh or anxiety producing. But if they stick with it, then it tends to show its pleasant side also. That's right. It can be very, very pleasant. (laughs) (laughs) So please continue with your definition of optimal interaction between attention and awareness. Okay, so mindfulness, one example in meditation, how using mindfulness makes you become more mindful by contributing to increasing stability of attention and increasingly powerful awareness. So a process that normally takes place is that we're focusing our attention on meditation object. And attention is alternating with objects in the background. One of those objects becomes interesting enough that this alternating attention starts to spend more and more of its time on this object. There can come to be the point where this object is occupying more of the attention over time than is the actual meditation object. If that state persists where you're paying more attention to, say, a distracting thought or a sensation in your body, or it could be a sound, most common would be a thought. So you come to this place where attention is resting more on the distraction than it is your meditation object. Then the next thing that will happen is that you'll forget that you're meditating. You'll forget about the meditation object, that it will pass completely out of awareness. It will no longer receive any attention, perhaps in the background of awareness, but if it's ignored a little bit longer, 
your meditation object, it's gone. And what happens usually after that is when your mind's finished with that thought, it moves on to something else and something else. And then you wake up and you suddenly realize, oh, I'm supposed to be meditating and uh, I've been doing this other thing instead. Now, this process, as we stabilize attention and as we develop stronger and clearer peripheral awareness, particularly introspective awareness, we can see this process as it happens. We begin to recognize when a distraction is beginning to dominate our attention. And at that point, we can focus our attention more closely on the meditation object, right? So this is an example of a more optimal interaction between attention and awareness. Awareness is informing attention that it is not fulfilling the intentions that uh, we've come to this activity with. Now, this is one thing about the relationship between attention and awareness anyway that's probably important in order to understand the things that I'm saying. Anything you become conscious of appears in awareness first. And then attention then selects its object from peripheral awareness. So it's important to recognize this. Perhaps you, and I'm sure your listeners have heard about, I mean, a long time ago when people first started doing experiments with meditators, they found that people doing certain kinds of meditation would not produce the usual evoked uh, response to a sudden sound, like a, a loud hand clap or something like that. And the reason for this is that that sound would arise in attention and the meditator had developed their degree of mindfulness well enough that at the level of peripheral awareness, this has arisen in peripheral awareness. Peripheral awareness is clear enough that it can identify this sound as something that need not be attended to, that's not important, that is not a threat, that is not a possibility of some desire or fulfillment. And so, therefore, the evoked potential that would be normally be produced as the attention shifted to that object doesn't happen. It's a very fascinating experience. Uh, you can, like someone will drop a dish and some part of awareness knows there was a loud sound and it's almost expecting a reaction, but it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. It's a, a beautiful example of it, right? Yeah. So awareness is where everything comes first. There's a fairly minimal amount of processing that takes place, but it's an important evaluation. It also is much more relational than it is object-focused. It's more concerned with the relation of things and uh, whether or not they're appropriate or, or expected or unexpected or inappropriate and things like that. And so it can, when it's functioning properly, make sure that attention is directed to the things that attention should be directed towards and that attention does not become preoccupied with things that aren't important. Awareness also provides the context. Awareness is the big picture aspect of consciousness. It's where you know who you are and where you are and what you're doing, where attention easily forgets this. Now, somebody who is not particularly mindful, somebody says or does something that pushes one of their buttons, and they tend to react out of conditioning and very often regret whatever it is they said or did afterwards. A mindful person 
on the other hand, always doesn't lose the context of who they are and where they are and who they're dealing with. And so their button gets pushed. They know their button's been pushed, but they realize that the conditioned reaction would not be appropriate that perhaps this person that's pushed their button is someone that they love and they care about, and therefore the the nasty comment that was about to be generated would not be appropriate, that it would produce consequences that were at variance with what they would like them to be. So this is the kind of interactive role that attention and awareness play. Attention also serves to direct awareness in a particular situation Attention is being paid to certain types of things because there's some good reason for it. You may be at work and it has to do with your job. You may be performing some other kind of activity, anything from operating a piece of machinery, anything you can think of. So awareness is guided by these activities of attention. So awareness knows what is the most relevant kind of information that arises in the field of conscious awareness. The function of attention when it isolates something and zooms in on it is it analyzes and evaluates it in a way that goes beyond the capacity of awareness. Then it either lets go of it as being judged not of continued value or else it can lead to behaviors that are appropriate in response to whatever that is. So attention tells awareness what's important in a given situation. And so then awareness, then having its context defined, can guide the movements of attention so that they occur in the most effective way. Think of how often our attention becomes so preoccupied with something that we fail to be aware of other important things that are happening in our environment. And this would be a classic example of a failure of mindfulness or the so-called absent-minded professor, (laughs) that sort of thing, right? Totally preoccupied with our attention in such a way that we walk into the wall or do something stupid. Awareness suffers at that point. Well, the whole of us suffers, but it's because awareness has collapsed. Quality Um, of awareness goes down. So do you find people are able to achieve these levels of optimal interaction? And if they do, are you seeing them not only having exemplary behavior, which I could see happening because they're able to have enough room to decide what actions to take? Mm -hmm. And are you also seeing them have the kind of situation described in the suttas where they never experience certain emotions or never experience certain types of negative thoughts and so on? Well, this is not something that is a direct result of mindfulness. And somebody can have very powerful mindfulness and they still experience emotions Uh, They can experience unwholesome emotions, and they can entertain those unwholesome emotions. It depends on the whole rest of the person's psyche and their value system and their worldview. And, you know, I mean, each of us lives in in our own private universe that we've created in our mind. And so mindfulness by itself doesn't guarantee exemplary behavior or wholesomeness of action. And it certainly doesn't lead to an absence of emotions. You can use mindfulness to train yourself 
and wholesome behavior. This is what makes it very powerful in the particular practice it's referred to as the practice of virtue. Now, the practice of virtue consists in not engaging in the kinds of speech, action, or livelihood. I could expand on the last, but I, I won't right now. Not engaging in the kinds of speech and action that are unwholesome in the sense that they are driven by craving as desire and aversion, and that they are a reflection of self-attachment. So the reason that a person would engage in unwholesome speech or behavior is that it would be self-serving in some way. Even what makes it unwholesome is two things. First of all, it would be unwholesome in that it might be to the detriment of the well-being of others, but it's also unwholesome in the sense that it is predisposing that person to act out of self-centeredness and craving. So it's actually making that person more enslaved than before to craving in terms of their thoughts and their feelings and their speech and their, their action but it's also reinforcing the uh, bonds of attachment to self. So the practice of virtue done properly means going through your life, engaging in wholesome behaviors, and the effect of it is that craving arises as desire or aversion, but what you do is you refrain from speaking and acting out of that desire and aversion. And that has just the opposite effect of acting out of desire and aversion. It weakens your enslavement to the compulsions of desire and aversion. In doing so, you're denying your self-interest by refraining from engaging in unwholesome speech and action. And so you're loosening somewhat the attachment that you have to self. So you see how mindfulness applied in the form of the practice of virtue in daily life is actually moving us towards the, uh, we're, we're practicing the behavior of an awakened person, but we're actually forming our future selves to be an awakened person. We are moving ourselves, we're self-creating as someone who is at first less and then ultimately not at all attached to the self notion. And as a person who at first no longer is driven by, but ultimately no longer experiences craving and aversion. Now, you could use mindfulness to train yourself to behave in these ways, and it'd be quite wonderful and it'd be quite effective. But there will always be the tendency, if you stop practicing mindfulness, or if you find yourself in a situation where you lose your mindfulness, of going back to that self-centered, craving-driven pattern of behavior. And so the important thing about awakening is that it changes at a very deep, fundamental way, our perceptions of who and what we are and our relationship to the world and what the actual source of our happiness and, and suffering is. And so now you enjoy very powerful mindfulness, but what makes this mindfulness even more powerful and what makes you less vulnerable to losing it are these deep shifts in perception.
in fundamental ways you perceive reality. And to expand upon that, what is your general advice for people who have had some level of awakening? How do you recommend they move forward after that? I think it's very important that they fully understand the, the Eightfold Path and its significance, and they practice it in its entirety. This is something that I've never seen really addressed in the traditional literature of uh, pretty much any traditions that I've explored. But you can be awakened, awakened in the sense that you have attained a shift in understanding of the nature of things, but you haven't developed in terms of your, your behavior and your inner internal processes, you haven't developed the natural consequences of this knowledge, of this wisdom that you have attained. What this means, you know, you usually speak of wisdom and compassion as being conjoined. And to the extent that wisdom means recognizing the interconnectedness of absolutely everything and recognizing that there is no separate self naturally gives rise to a certain degree of compassion. But you can develop wisdom, but that compassion, that nascent level of compassion, of true compassion that arises with the first stage of awakening can remain undeveloped. And so you can be out of balance with a rather primitive degree of compassion and a lot of wisdom. And this helps us understand some of the things that happen when we see individuals who are regarded as awakened engaging in behaviors that are inconsistent with that awakening. It's a failure within their mind to fully integrate and fully develop the characteristics of an awakened being that are the logical consequence of the knowledge that they have obtained. So they can sit there as a fount of knowledge and yet be guilty of various kinds of financial misdeeds and exploitation, including sexual exploitation, all these other kinds of things. And we look at them and say, how can this be? How can this person be so wise and still behave in such a way? And this is actually rather common. <laughs> it's far too common. So awakening is just the beginning of a process of much deeper spiritual development. And the Eightfold Path, properly understood, the Dharma as a whole, properly understood, gives us the guidelines that we need to develop that. As an awakened person, mindfulness is naturally much more powerful. And you're capable of this kind of personal spiritual development to a much greater degree than somebody who's not awakened. But, I mean, people would love to believe this. All of a sudden, like snap of your fingers, I'm awakened and now, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm there, I'm done. And it's, it's, not, it's not the way it works. <laughs> it's wonderful. You've reached this huge, wonderful new level that you're not going to really fall back from. But there's still so much further to go. And how would you suggest someone go about treading that new path post-awakening? What is the methodology there? I think one valuable guideline is in the 10-fetter 
four-path model that is provided in the suttas. Now, this is something that I, I don't think is often very well understood, but it is one of the most brilliant pieces of guidance that has ever been generated. We really thank the Buddha for spelling it out in the terms that he did, in terms of overcoming the fetters. A stream entrant has overcome certain very specific fetters, which are attachment to the ego self. But they still feel like they're a separate self. But they know that this is an illusion. They have an ego. They need, you need an ego to function. Without an ego, you can't keep your laundry separate from somebody else's, right? <laughs> but the ego has become transparent, and actually they're in the perfect position to cultivate a strong, healthy ego that serves not only themselves, but everyone else. So the first fetter that's overcome is this attachment to the ego self. And so it's seen for what it is, and it becomes something that can be dropped when necessary and used when appropriate. The second thing that they do is that they overcome the belief, and the way it's usually stated is rules, rites, and rituals, and I would translate that as they overcome the belief in magic. They have experienced a profound insight into paticca samuppada, into dependent arising. I'm not talking about the links of dependent arising. Now, the links of dependent arising are a different pedagogical tool for teaching how the human mind works and, and how we shape ourselves. I'm talking about it in the fundamental sense of causality, that there is nothing at all that stands outside the realm of causality, of causes and conditions. Everything is a result of causes and conditions. So there is the falling away of the belief in magic, and magic is essentially believing that there is anything, at least anything of any significance or value that lies outside of the laws of causality. I'll just point out that the, the kind of philosophical logic that you could apply to this would bring you to the conclusion that anything that was not part of greater causality would be irrelevant because it could neither produce effects nor be affected by the realm of causality. So that's just a, just something in, in passing. <laughs> there, there could be something like that. Somebody could believe in something like that. And I'd say, that's fine, you know, but uh, as far as I can tell, it doesn't have any relevance. <laughs> So that's the second fetter. And then the third fetter, of course, is doubt. Up until the point of stream entry, there can be, and there will be, and there actually should be, a question in a person's mind, you know, is this real or is am I pursuing a fairy tale? And as a matter of fact, a lot of people find upon stream entry that they were following a fairy tale. You know, this is partly due to the fact that Westerners like to call awakening enlightenment. The Tibetans have really contributed to this enormously. They've made enlightenment into this thing that somehow you have all these supernatural powers and you can walk through walls and all this other kinds of stuff. Awakening doesn't do that. And so the falling away of doubt about things like that is a good thing. <laughs> but the, the doubt that you want to fall away is the doubt that can impair you, that can hold you back, that keeps you from throwing yourself 100% totally wholeheartedly into the continued practice of the Dharma. So these fetters fall away. If we look and see what remains, craving hasn't fallen away. 
the inherent sense of being a separate self, even though the ego self has become transparent, we still feel like separate selves as stream entrants, right? And we still experience craving, and we're still driven by it. Maybe not as strongly as before, but we're still driven by it. Now, the second path the Buddha defined in terms, not in the way of falling away of another fetter, and a very, very important step that happens that allows for the falling away of the next fetters. And this is a tremendous weakening of the power that craving and self-attachment have over you. They actually may strive to find some sort of self to account for the sense of being a separate self. They're in the position of knowing that the self that they thought they were is an illusion, but at the same time feeling like they're a separate self. And so, especially if they are attached to notions of reincarnation and things like that, they may find themselves striving to find some kind of other version of self to fill that gap or to explain that. And of course, consciousness is one of the favorite things that people cling to for that. But the result of it is that there's a remnant of self-clinging. And then there's also there's also craving. So now what happens if a person continues to practice the Eightfold Path in its entirety, including meditation, and as a part of their meditation, there should be a repetition to the degree that they're capable. And it's not always the case that a person can do this, but to the degree that what led them to stream entry was a practice that was structured enough that they can create the same causes and conditions that arose that allowed them that breakthrough to awakening, then they can have what's referred to as a fruition experience. And if they repeat this, the more often they repeat this, then the more they consolidate the insights that brought them to stream entry. So continuing to practice the Eightfold Path in its entirety, including meditation, is a very important thing. What it'll do is it will eventually lead to a place of a recognition. And this tends to happen, it, t it tends to be kind of a, a shocking realization when it happens sometimes very uncomfortable. A person can become very miserable when they realize this. They realize that in everything that they've done, well, almost everything that they've done, there are exceptions, uh, but in almost everything that they've said and done, in almost all of their thoughts, what is behind so many of their emotions is craving. And that wherever there is craving, there is suffering. And even where the craving is very, very subtle, that there is suffering and that there arises in within them this huge wish to overcome craving. They see craving as the problem it is. And this empowers them in the face of craving. This disempowers craving itself, because when they experience craving and they recognize it from a place of mindfulness, they can work to uproot craving. Now, it doesn't happen that everybody approaches second path from the point of view of craving, because some approach it from the point of view of self-attachment. They'll have a similar shocking realization uh, it's actually going a little bit more to the root of things, but uh, it's not necessarily any more effective. But they'll realize that there is this undercurrent of self-attachment that is almost always there, that only rarely does it fall away. Uh, 
But on those rare occasions when it does, there is a kind of peace and happiness and comfort that is not there the rest of the time. That there is an even greater liberation than the one that gave them the glorious afterglow that a lot of people experience uh, when they achieve stream entry. So it corresponds pretty much to the experience I described of people recognizing the ubiquitousness of craving, as they recognize the ubiquitousness of this self-clinging. And the same thing applies, that they actually attain second path through the realization of this, which empowers them to be more mindfully aware of self-clinging in its presence and to not be so tightly bound to it. And so this then sets them on the second path. And they work through the second path to uproot self-attachment and craving. And it's interesting, one of the things that people often spontaneously do, but can be guided to do by a careful teacher, and there's a certain danger in this too, well, it's why it's really valuable for somebody to have a teacher in their progression through these paths. There is the tendency to actually seek out situations that elicit craving or that elicit self-attachment in order to confront it, in order to overcome it, in order to uproot it. And you can see how there's a certain danger in this, but this is also the most powerful and effective way to get to the place of achieving third path which is defined as the falling away of desire and aversion for things of the sense realm. There still remains desire and aversion in their subtler forms of desire for being and desire for non-being and corresponding aversion. But they are now liberated from the kinds of craving for things of the self realm. They can enjoy life fully, but they are not enslaved by the compulsions to pursue the pleasant and to attempt to destroy or avoid the unpleasant, which are actually the causes of a kind of suffering. So there's a much greater freedom from suffering. What they remain with, they'll have this inherent sense of being a separate self, this feeling, you know, okay, this just feeling of somehow I'm still a separate self. And they still do have these remnants of craving, which are related to that sense of being a separate self. I mean, you can probably see, I mean, it's not hard to understand how, as long as you still have that sense that you are a self, that there can be related to that desire for being and desire for non-being or aversion to being or aversion to non-being. This is a subtler form of suffering, but it's a very real form of suffering that is still present for somebody who is on third path. And it's something that they need to work through. And I think maybe I'll cut this description short just by saying the work of third path and the attainment of fourth path is when that inherent sense of self is transcended and the fetters associated with it are eliminated as well. So there is no longer this craving for being or non-being. One of the fetters is conceit. It's the conceit I am. That is removed entirely. And there is the restlessness of spirit that until a person has approached fourth path, 
they're not even that aware of. But there is this inner agitation, the subtle discomfort that is associated with being in this place of the conceit I am and the cravings for being and non-being. And so that is how the fourth path was defined by the Buddha, and that's the Arhat. I'll just add one more thing to this. The Buddha stopped there. The process of spiritual development on this path does not stop there by any means. And it is not the case that you get to the place where you're an arhat and that's done. Okay, it's the end of the process. Well, that's very fascinating. How would you describe the directions it may go after fourth path? The early experience of fourth path is as though in a lot of ways you've left many aspects of your humanity behind. I mean, there's very rich compassion, but much of what makes us human has been at least temporarily inhibited. I can't draw as strongly upon the literature because there's not a lot of literature that deals with this. But the essential thing, as far as I know, is that there is a return of your humanness. But I think maybe to borrow some of the language of the consciousness hackers is that it's now a transhuman form, or we could borrow on integral theory and speak of it in those terms. You've reached a sort of transcendent level of human. And so you become fully human again, but are in this transcendent place. I'll just maybe leave it at this point that you will experience from there something that will probably have happened to you in the course of first, second, and third paths already, which is that you've reached a point where it's like, wow, this is, you know, I've arrived. I understand it. I'm here. This is wonderful, you know, and you'll be at that plateau until something will happen and it will open the doors and you'll realize that, no, you've just been on a temporary plateau and there's so, so very much yet more to learn and explore and to be empowered by mm -hmm. Thank you for that description. You know, I'm reminded of how when the Buddha went forth, the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, went forth, as the story tells us, he was motivated by fear of sickness, old age, and death. And I'm curious how, as one progresses along the path, one reflects back or on those motivations or on those fears and how that develops. I mean, I'm noticing a huge amount of gray hair and my one leg doesn't work right anymore. And as we age and encounter sickness and the possibility of dying, I feel like this hits the actual bare metal of the practice, like what it's really about. Well, it's certainly what falls away is the fear. Sickness still occurs. Old age still occurs. Death still occurs. There are still many sources of pain. Suffering is overcome, but there's still pain. That's one thing that I like to restate the first noble truth as pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. <laughs> so you haven't overcome the pain, the sickness, the old age, or the death. What you've overcome is the fear. We fear pain because we suffer in response to it. This is the story of one of the suttas, the Buddha's asked about this, and he said that for a worldling, a painful event is like being shot with two arrows. 
that the first arrow is the injury that produces the pain. The second arrow is the mind's reaction to it, which is a rejection of it. That rejection of it, that's a form of craving. That's the aversion to it. And it produces an enormous amount of suffering. The amount of suffering is so much greater than the pain itself that to overcome suffering makes pain more or less irrelevant. I love the way Shinzen puts this in mathematical terms, that suffering equals pain times resistance. And the resistance is the aversion, it's the craving. And of course, you know, if you have uh, 10 units of pain and you meet it with 10 units of resistance, you've got 100 units of suffering. If you reduce the resistance to two, you've only got 20 units of suffering. If your resistance becomes zero, there is zero suffering. So pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Sickness, old age, and death, they become a part of the great adventure that it is to be a person. These five aggregates constitute a person. And this is a person who is on an incredible adventure. And actually, I feel sorry for the people whose interpretation of the Buddha's teaching that this existence is the worst thing that could have possibly happened to us, and the, the sooner it's ended, the better. It is an incredible adventure. You don't know how long it'll last. You don't know what will unfold. You don't know what wonders you'll be able to experience, what challenges you'll be able to overcome. But sickness, old age, and death are part of the great adventure. They're not something to be afraid of. There's no shortage of challenges associated with these. But to the degree that you have overcome three or five or all ten of these fetters, you're far, far more well-equipped to meet these challenges in the best possible way. Well, that seems like a perfect note on which to end. So thank you so much for joining us today, Chuladasa. Well, it's my pleasure. I always enjoy talking about these things, and there's often not an opportunity to go into them to this degree. So I really thank you for the opportunity to be able to do that. And I sincerely hope that your listeners find something of value in what I've had to I'm say. I'm positive that will be the case. Thank you again. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>